Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello, dear listener, and welcome back to Owning It, the Anxiety Podcast with me, Caroline Foran. My guest this week is a bit of a legend, Dr. Julie Smith. You'll know her on social media as Dr. Julie. She's a clinical psychologist with over a decade of professional experience. She's also an online educator and a social media star in her own right, having taken to TikTok and Instagram when she had the realization that a lot of what she was covering in her clinic with her patients should be made accessible to everyone for free. So she shares content on those platforms all the time and she has amassed over 20 million likes and over three and a half million followers on TikTok. It's incredible. She speaks so much sense and she's got a new book out called Why Has Nobody Told Me This Before? And it's a mental health manual for the 21st century covering issues such as stress, anxiety, burnout, grief and how to support someone else's mental health. So in this conversation we talk through obviously our focus is anxiety and stress and the difference between the two, her coping mechanisms that she finds most effective, how she helps people and then I ask a couple of questions towards the end that I got followers to send in to me so we do touch on quite a bit there's a lot in it so much of it I in my head I was making mental notes of things to circle back to for myself next time I feel anxious so yeah I hope you find it helpful Dr Julie is fantastic she articulates everything so well and yeah I will always appreciate your feedback your comments your shares for anyone who you think might find this helpful and thank you as always for listening Dr. Julie Smith, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me on well, what's a pretty dreary February morning here in Dublin. How are you wherever you are in the world? I'm very good, thank you. I'm I'm in Hampshire in England, so and it's pretty similar here to be fair. It's one of those dark days, but it's nice to be chatting to someone, so it's great. There's so much that I want to chat to you about. The book, first of all, massive congratulations. Why has nobody told me this before? It's been number one in the UK for quite a long time now. Yeah, this is uh, our fourth week, number one, which is mind blowing. I I still can't believe it. (laughs) It's unbelievable. Like it's such a testament to the work you do, the resource that you've created. But on the flip side, it also kind of highlights just how many people are struggling at the moment. Yeah, I think people are kind of looking for any little tips they can find, aren't they? That, um, But also, you know, stuff that's evidence-based and that can genuinely be helpful. So, um, yeah, I've tried to sort of pack it all into one space so that people can kind of leave something, you know, leave the book on a coffee table and yeah. keep coming back to it depending on what's going on for them at any given time. Yeah, you've done that so well. I mean, I think what's what's so great about it is how digestible it is. And often I find that people can be quite intimidated by the expert element of it. And what's great about the book is that it's so... If you're just speaking in such plain, simple, easy to understand language that people can take right away and put into action in their lives. Yeah. I mean, it was something that used to really frustrate me about um, when I was studying psychology and you would kind of read these journals and things and, and everything, the language would be so sort of complex and, and you, you'd find yourself thinking, okay, what is 
the main message from this, you know, 20 page paper? What are they trying to get across with all these words? And, and often you could come away with, you know, a couple of sentences or a paragraph that just said it all. And um, so I think that's always been my kind of thing was, you know, how can you just make it clear so that you can come away with the, the absolute message you need without it having to be too complex. Yeah, because people, I mean, if they're coming to the book in a state of overwhelm or stress or anxiety, like they, they are already feeling quite overwhelmed they don't need to be overwhelmed by trying to unpack something very stodgy and scientific I want to start by just giving people a brief bit of background into who you are and what you do if that's okay so, so I worked in the NHS for, you know, 10 years or so. Um, and then once I had um, two of my three children, um, realized it was a bit of a juggle. So I started to run a very small private practice just by myself and just so that I could work around the children, really. And yeah. um, during that time, I noticed that a lot of people that came along for therapy um, didn't always need long term therapy. Uh, they people don't realize that when you go to therapy, there is a lot of talking, but there's also a little bit of learning about how your mind works, how you can impact on your own mood and your mental health, you know, how you can influence your emotional state and that kind of thing. And I found that a lot of people, once they had that information, they found it so empowering to, to manage outside of the sessions. So whatever useful stuff was happening in the sessions, it enabled them to, to begin to make changes in their real life, which is where it really counts, right? And um, the, the title of the book even is just an amalgamation of, of what so many people have said to me before, uh, which is why on earth has nobody told me this before? You know, how was I not taught this in school? What, this isn't rocket science, but it's helping every day. So um, I just became gradually sort of more and more passionate about it. And I would, you know, finish work and go on to my husband over dinner. You know, this should be made available. People shouldn't have to pay to come and see people like me um, to find out basic information about how their own brain works. And um, so he kind of turned it on me really and said, well, go on then, make it available, <laughs> put it out there. And um, so we made a couple of YouTube videos half-heartedly and, um, and at the same time, we found platforms like TikTok and Instagram where short form video was a way to reach lots of people. So uh, he said, well, you know, make some bite-sized information, you know, little snippets of information and see how it goes. And, and I fully expected to be uh, trolled out of, of places like, like TikTok because it was full of, you know, young people dancing and comedy and all these lovely lighthearted things. Um, but there weren't any sort of professionals doing that kind of thing that I could find at the time. So I, I expected it to end as quickly as it started, but it took off like a rocket. And two years later, we're sort of, I don't know, 3.1 million followers in on TikTok and half, well, yeah, heading for 600,000 on Instagram. So yeah, it, it, I think it is a reflection of what people are kind of looking for, isn't it? And it's also, I guess, turning the whole social media as a tool that can be helpful on its head. I mean, a lot of people go and they they spend hours on TikTok and Instagram and they're scrolling and maybe it's not all that helpful to them. But if they can stumble then upon a little quick video from you that helps them understand something, then you're making it a really useful tool. You're helping the problem at large, which I think is people spending so much time on their phones. If they're going to be there and it's going to be a source of anxiety, you may as well be giving them the good stuff. Yeah, I think that that is it for me. When I, when I think about that sort of weighing up and, you know, it's a common question about, um, you know, does it make sense to be on social media when you're talking about good mental health? And I'm thinking, well, I can't stop everybody else from being on it, but um, certainly if people are going to be on there and either accessing information that might be misinformation or um, stuff that's making them feel worse, then I can slightly increase the possibility that they could come across something that might help them or might make them challenge, you know, some of the things that they're doing. Have things changed? Like, are you, you're doing so much more of the content on social media that you've had to pull back from the actual clinic or, and then obviously the book writing is a huge undertaking on top of having three kids as well. How does your week shape up now? Yeah, well, the pandemic really changed things because obviously we had to switch to video calls only, um, which a lot of people didn't feel comfortable doing. Um, and so very quickly, um, you know, my sort of my very already small caseload um, sort of diminished right down. And then I've just sort of kept those people going that wanted to keep going. Um, but it, it wasn't, um, you know, it's by no means a full-time job. It's um, because, yeah, the, the, the writing of the book and everything just completely um, sort of swamped me. So I realized I can't do it all. Um, and uh, so I've, yeah, I've kept going what I, what I already had and the, but not sort of taken other people on. What do you think, or what did you feel 
wasn't being catered to in other books that made you feel like this is something I have to put together? Uh, I think some, I mean, I love books. I'm a real sort of book hoarder. I'm surrounded in them. And, um, and, and I love that kind of, you know, the self-help style books where you're learning something that might help you, you know, as you go through life or something that might help you improve. And, and I find that, that something that I like about other books that I wanted to use in this book was I don't always, I mean, I'm a mother, working mother of three. I don't often have time to read a book cover to cover and, and often you don't want to. And like you were saying earlier, actually, if you're struggling emotionally, that's a, an example of a time when you really can't read cover to cover, you know, your concentration goes, it's a real struggle. And, and what I like to do when I'm looking for information about something specific, is I like to be able to dive in to a really clear spot where, okay, this is the page or this is the chapter where I'm going to get the answers I'm looking for. So I was really careful and sort of intentional about how I split it up into, into problems. And um, so they're all kind of, you know, everyday life problems that all humans face at some point. So everyone wakes up some days not feeling as buoyant in mood than they'd like to, or, you know, everyone has days when they feel anxious about something or stressed about something, or maybe they're going through a grieving process um, and all of those sorts of things, or maybe they're helping somebody else or trying to support somebody else with their mental health and they're not sure how. So it's those kind of things I wanted to, to stick in there, but I separated it all out so that it's really clear so people could kind of dive in. Um, I guess the things that I perhaps don't like about other books that um, that I tried to, you know, steer away from was the fact that, you know, that you need to understand where that idea or concept has come from. And, and I wanted to be, you know, I mean, as a psychologist anyway, we have to, everything we do has to be evidence-based. Um, and so I wanted to be really up to date with the research and really clear on, on those sorts of things and the evidence and not just kind of throw things in um, that weren't based on, on something that I would deliver in therapy. You mentioned there about people coming to to your content or to the book for advice on how to help other people. And that's a question I get all the time. It's like someone who's cares so much about someone, maybe it's a partner, maybe it's a friend, a family member. And they're like, my friend is going through such a hard time with anxiety. How can I better support them? So before we get into the nuts and bolts of, of anxiety and what's what the book offers in that area, what do you think is the best advice you can give for someone to, to support someone else? First and foremost is be clear about how you're going to look after yourself through it. So if you're caring for someone who is really struggling in, in the long term um, with their mental health, that will ha- take its toll on your own health if you if you don't carefully look after yourself, you know, because you can you can keep giving and you can keep supporting, but if you're not looking after your own health at the same time, your own health will deteriorate and then you won't be able to help as well as you'd like to. So take your own health seriously. And that means holding certain boundaries and being clear about those, you know, um, take away the guessing games about when you're available and when you're not, or in what ways you can be available and what ways you can't. If you're clear about that from the beginning, and this is, you know, really what we do in therapy as well. There's a very clear, uh, this is your session time. This is your session day. This is when it ends. This is when it begins. Um, this is what can and cannot happen in between sessions in terms of contact and and those sorts of things. And, and, and that's really a positive thing because it enables people to understand what the availability is. So it stops them from feeling, you know, like they're putting you out or that they're asking too much or from asking too much of you. And then you feeling unable to say no. So, you know, have those really clear boundaries from the beginning. And I think also if you're unsure about how to support someone, it's okay to ask them. There isn't some sort of golden pathway to, this is the best way to support someone in terms of you, what exactly you should say and those sorts of things. If you're not sure, that person is likely to have a clear idea of when you're getting it right and when you're getting it wrong. And so it's okay to just open that up and let them know, look, I really care about you and I I really want to support you through this and I'm here for you. I don't want to get it wrong. So let's have this understanding that you'll let me know when I'm getting it wrong and you'll let me know when I'm getting it right. And, and that way, you know, I won't take it personally and then we can, we can get through this together. So in that, you're just letting the person know, I really care about you. I am here for you. And, and there's no guessing games between us. We can, we can lay it out on the table and be honest with each other. If you want to talk today, let's talk today. If you want distraction and we, you want to go for a walk and talk about something different, let's do that. And, and so just, just allowing it to be open to possibilities, I guess. It's so true. I mean, I remember one of the biggest learnings I had when I had a horrific 
horrific time with anxiety and it really it was like a constant chronic thing that crippled me from one end of the day to the next for probably a year and when it first kind of hit me and I didn't understand what was going on in my mind my body my now husband then my boyfriend was kind of there beside me through it all and he didn't have a clue what was going on didn't understand like myself didn't understand any of it and I remember him asking how he could help better and I remember something really clear for me was when I would say oh I'm, I'm feeling a bit anxious or I'm, I'm after having like a panic attack if he was to be like oh Jesus, okay, let's just calm down. Him reacting anxiously to my anxiety made me more anxious. So I asked him to just always be like, that's okay. This makes sense. Look, you've had, you feel anxiety. Maybe this is why. And just to to bring it down a notch and normalize it for me so that I don't feel that I'm putting my anxiety on him then. That makes me more anxious in return. So those were things I only kind of really thought of when he asked me and when I sort of got to know what makes me feel better or makes me feel worse. Absolutely. And what you were saying about, about, about your partner being able to kind of maintain calm and and still be sort of empathic to you and what you needed. And, and that's often, often something we kind of do as, as therapists in the room and we call it containment. So are you able to sort of contain the feelings and hold that emotion with someone and f- feel it enough to be empathic, but not um, allow it to overtake you so that you're then both adrift together? And it's a real balance. And sometimes, you know, people get it wrong and sometimes people get it right. And, and it's okay to, to make those mistakes, isn't it? And then, and then come back from it and just always keep the conversation open. I think is good, isn't it? To come back and say, well, that, that sort of worried me that time. And then, but I think I can, I can be more present this time. And and I think I know what we can do moving forward. And, and those, it's a real balance. It's such a like an ecosystem of support that you have around you and everyone has to be kind of aware of it together for someone to move through an anxiety that is that crippling, I suppose. And you need you do need support as well. Part six and part seven of the book really hone in on anxiety and stress. And so part six is on fear and part seven is on stress. I know there's sometimes a bit of overlap. So to to start with, how how do you define anxiety? Because there is quite a spectrum from like, oh, I have an anxious moment because I'm after getting a fright or I'm up on a height. And I don't like heights versus I'm living with anxiety all day. I, I'm, I'm crippled by it. I, I feel fearful about everything. My thoughts are tinged with anxiety. I have the physical symptoms like all the time. I think you've probably kind of you hit it on the head there about that sort of persistence. I think a lot of these words are addressing the same system in a sense that we only have one threat response. We have that one alarm system that triggers off is, you know, your brain is constantly taking in information from the outside world through your senses. And it only has those signs to pick up on. So it's a bit like detective work. And, and so just like a smoke alarm, any kind of sense that all is not well, your brain is, you know, hardwired to let you know by setting the alarm off. And um, when that alarm goes off, you might, in, in some situations, we conceptualize that as fear or terror. In other situations, we conceptualize that as anxiety. And in others, we'll conceptualize it as stress. And 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 that's really about our ideas or our, our meaning that we attach to that feeling at that time, depending on the context, because um, the, the feeling can be slightly different depending on the context, right? So for example, I distinguish in the book between sort of stress and anxiety. And um, again, they're from that same biological system um, and they both involve that sort of increase in alertness. So your, your alert level will go up so that you can pay attention to the demands that you're facing at that point. So that's your brain saying, we're not used to this, uh, pay attention, we might need to do something any minute now. And and you might get that feeling, let's say, uh, I think the example is in the book is something around um, being in a queue in the post office. So let's say you allocated yourself 10 extra minutes to run down to the post office, post something, and then get back for your meeting. And then you find yourself in this huge queue and and you feel stress, right? You, you kind of, you feel stressed because your heart's pounding. You might be sweating, thinking, I'm going to be late for my meeting. I'm going to be late for my meeting. And you start to kind of look around you and think, what do I do next? And that sort of increase in your level of alertness is your brain saying, we might need to reprioritize here because something could go wrong. I could be late. I could be then humiliated or sacked or whatever it is. So that's useful. That's a useful bit of stress you would genuinely cause, you know, most people would sort of say, well, that's stress. 
anxiety tends to be more conceptualized around being associated with fear. So there tends to be some um, element of threat, whether that be physical threat, like physical danger or psychological threat. So um, when there is fear of, uh, let's say, abandonment or rejection or public humiliation, those are what we call psychological threats. So they still set that alarm system off, even though you don't feel that you might die anytime soon, they, they are threatening to your survival in the long term. And so they still trigger off that stress response, because if you can do something to stop you from being abandoned by your community, for example, then you need to step up and do that. And so your brain, give, you know, allows that extra energy, gives you that boost of, of um, sort of anxiety that allows you to do what you need to do. Um, and, and, you know, if, if that anxiety response is being triggered over and over, then, then that would, you know, that's when people are sort of living with more persistent anxiety because something is different for everybody, but whatever it is at that time, something is, is re-triggering that stress response. And maybe um, possibly there, there aren't, the, so there isn't the framework that maybe the um, environment doesn't allow it or the skills don't allow it to, for that anxiety to be, to be sort of come back down to calm. One of the biggest issues for for people listening to this podcast, and certainly the biggest issue for me when my anxiety was so bad, was once you had addressed the different things that maybe you had brought it about. For me, it was a job change that just was stressful, and I felt like I had no choice but to stay there. And this, it just built up and up and up and exploded really into me, and all the fear of well, I I can't quit and and everything. And then I kind of thought that leaving that situation would solve it and then I guess I had pushed myself for so long with these stress hormones that then kind of flipped me into more persistent anxiety and when I thought it would go away and it didn't and my body had obviously got itself into such a state then what kind of took over was the fear that I was capable of feeling so anxious in the first place and the fear that I might not ever be okay again and the anxiety about the anxiety and being anxious about the presence of anxiety and then you're into this whole treadmill of worry and in this cycle and that's where people fall down I guess a hole and feel like they're they're stuck there now how do you how do you tease that apart with someone when you're working with them one-on-one it's really common actually that sort of fear of the fear um because it is so uncomfortable uncomfortable just isn't the word is it it's excruciating and um and so if we if we feel that in all its intensity and then we find some level of relief or retreat we develop this sort of fear of being in that situation again and feeling that fear again. And, and, and what we often kind of talk about in therapy is changing our relationship with that feeling and, and allowing ourselves to experience it um, often in, in not in all of its um, overwhelming um, intensity, but in small sort of almost bite-sized chunks. So, so small and, and seemingly more manageable situations where we can allow a rise in that stress response and we can do something different with what we experience. So um, often when someone is struggling with anxiety, there might be a, um, uh, the natural urge is to escape, get out of there immediately and then avoid it. So let's say you, you go into the supermarket and you suddenly, you know, you're in the middle of your food shop and you suddenly start to feel incredibly panicked and your heart's pounding, you're sweating and you just, you can't breathe. You just need to get out. The urge is to escape this situation because something has triggered off a sense that you're not safe. And so you, you abandon the trolley and you get out. And the moment you leave the door, you have this kind of, oh, phew, oh, I don't have to face that today. I'm safe. And when we do that, when we escape, our brain gets a signal, a little click of evidence that says um, we escaped something that wasn't safe there. You know, supermarket equals danger. And, and so what we then do on top of escape is we go, do you know what? I'm not going back there. I'm, I'm going to avoid it as long as I possibly can. So you get someone else to do the food shopping for you. You might go to a smaller store, all those kind of things. So you avoid it as much as you can. And then when there comes a day when you have to go back to that place, the fear response comes back even stronger because the last experience you have of being there was one where you felt like you kind of dodged a bullet in some way, you know, you escaped and, and your brain still associates that place with, with fear. 
And so what we would do if we were kind of tackling a fear in that way is graded exposure. So it would mean, well, first of all, it would mean learning some, some skills to be able to manage the the arousal of the anxiety. So bringing that um, down in certain kind of ways with like slow breathing and stuff like that. And then being able to gradually, gradually return to that environment. So in, in sort of graded exposure in terms of uh, something that feels manageable, but challenging. And then you repeat that over and over and over again until your body, what we call habituate. So your body will calm. When you're in a sort of feared situation, and you stay there, what you find is your body can't, can't keep it up. So your body exhausts itself. And as you, your body exhausts itself and your body comes down to calm, your brain clocks an experience of being in that situation and it going, okay, uh, you, you were calm by the end of it. And we need to do that on repeat in order to, for the brain to sort of learn over time that this is a, a, an okay situation. So the thing that you do all the time will become your comfort zone, that kind of thing. So if someone is sitting at home feeling this massive wave of anxiety and they're thinking there's nothing in my vicinity to really expose myself to other than the feeling that they're sitting with, do you turn then to just breathing through it? Yes. Um, in, in the moment, I would say breathing is one of the, so the, one of the quickest ways to calm the mind is through the body. So that sort of pounding heart feeling you have when you're anxious, you can't just decide, you know, I want to slow my heart down, but your brain, your, your heart is linked to your lungs. So if you can adjust the rate of your breathing, your heart rate will follow suit. So, you know, even if you do, you know, one or two deep breaths and you think this isn't working and, and, and then you stop, then it won't, you know, you have to give it time. So you give it a few minutes and, and this is really key actually is, is if you take two smaller breaths for each long out breath, so you kind of go and you extend the out breath as long as you can. So it's longer than the in breath and just keep doing that over, you know, a few minutes well, not even that long, you know, do it for as long as you can. What you don't want to do is sort of slow your breathing so much that you're starting to feel dizzy. You want to bring yourself back down to calm. So um, sort of really noting how, how it's impacting on your body. But I guess if you're in a situation where you're feeling anxious all the time and you have no idea what the trigger is, then it's time to start unraveling what's going on because often it can be a sign of something else. Another issue that people have a lot is that they think that once they read about anxiety, that they understand it and say, look, I know what's going on in my mind. I know what's going on in my body. I know why this has happened. Why am I so anxious? I think there's a lot of impatience around anxiety. And I think when it comes to the more persistent side of anxiety, it has probably taken a while to get there where you've built up this these stress hormones in your body and you've probably habituated to a state of anxiety, like to, to use the word you used, that it's not going to go away overnight. And I think then people panic that they're still feeling it. So can you just explain a little bit about how someone gets that point of very chronic anxiety, how it, it takes time to kind of unravel again in, in a good way to kind of come back to calm, even though you can calm yourself in the moment that you're in. And then later on, you might feel anxious again to get to a point where it's not dominating your everyday life maybe takes a little longer. Do you know something that, um, often sort of talk to people about when when they've experienced a trauma, for example, and they had a very stressful, uh, traumatic situation, and then they experience sort of constant re-triggering. As we talk about the stress response as being like a, a sort of coiled spring, and, and if you place too much stress on that coiled spring, it sort of overstretches it. And then it never feels like it goes quite back as, as tight as it did before. You know, it never kind of sits back it feels like there's always stress ready to be triggered. You know, it's not just going to disappear because I did something or because I understand it now. There's also the element that your stress response is a part of being human. And, and, and when it's being triggered off all the time, we have to really get honest with ourselves about how we're living. And, and that it's not necessarily a fault in the system it's not that your brain is getting everything wrong. It's that, you know, whether, whether someone has been through something that's pretty traumatic that needs addressing, or maybe there's something about the lifestyle. And often that's what happens in therapy is there's this sort of mapping out experience of, you know, really looking in detail at, at lifestyle and relationships and, you know, all of these different kind of elements of our experience that will impact on on the alarm system. And sometimes then we can make small, seemingly small adjustments to our lifestyle or sometimes big adjustments that will then impact on how we feel. 
And so I think it's sort of, it's one thing, isn't it, to say, you know, I, I don't want to be anxious. I want to be calm, but I also want to be, I don't know, CEO and, um, and I'm a mum of five and I want to have a, you know, a huge house, but I don't want to clean her. I want to do it all myself or, you know, whatever it is, you know, we kind of, there's something about the way our society is set up today that, that makes us feel like we need to have and do it all and be it all. And, and not be anxious along the way, you know, mm. be, be calm, but do everything perfectly. So I think we, we have to take a really serious look at the relentless standards we have for ourselves and our lifestyle and what's really, really important and really questioning the stuff that's less important and whether we need it at all. You mentioned just there, like you just gave a picture of the general juggle someone might be going through and all of the different spinning plates that we have can be a source of stress. And there's such a fine line between stress that serves as well and stress that can eventually compound and lead to anxiety. So can you talk to me a bit about when stress goes bad and how to watch out for that? Yeah, so stress is great when it's a short term. So it's made to be a short term response. It's made to be that um, when we talked about the idea of your, your brain is constantly taking in information from the outside world and then making decisions for you on how much energy is going to be released. Energy is a, it's a finite resource. It's really valuable. So your brain makes judgments all the time about how much energy it's going to release for you to meet the demands of the outside world. And, and when we, we, judge that the demands of the outside world are too much and it's not matched to our internal environment we can feel that as stress you know you feel that kind of rise in you know that sort of sometimes you can feel that rush of adrenaline through your body can't you or you can feel that sort of pounding heart mm-hmm. feeling and your body gearing up and sometimes when when those increase in demands are uh, really positive and we feel that we can meet the demands of it then we can experience that as, as positive. You know, we can get excited about something. And other times when we feel that we question our ability to meet the demands that are placed on us, then we can feel that as aversive. So some people feel stress as positive. Some people feel it as, as negative or the same people can feel it, feel both at different times. And that sort of good stress goes bad, if you like, when the demands that are placed on us are almost constant with no chance to replenish in between. So let's say that your brain is, is like, a, like a bank account. So if you, if you keep on churning out energy resources without getting something in return in terms of rest, replenishment, social connection, uh, nutrition, those sorts of things that are going to feed you and nourish you in return then you're just depleting the account. You know, you're just, you're, you're quickly going to run to zero. And, you know, people say, oh, I'm running on fumes, that kind of thing. Cause they're not, they're not feeding the system, um, but they are taking from it constantly. This is why I feel like there's the, the poor comfort zone gets such bad press. And we see all these memes and quotes about, you know, stepping outside your comfort zone and life begins there and people are like pushing themselves beyond it. And if you don't take time to come back to the comfort zone and have respect for the comfort zone and the rest and the replenishment and the rejuvenation that happens there, then no wonder you end up in a state of anxiety. Do you think there's, there's, there has to be room in people's lives for the comfort zone. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. There has to be a balance. There has to be because it's how we're built. You know, we're, we're not built to run constantly. We're, we're built to, to lean into stress and, and exert that energy and then rest and replenish so that we can go again, just like, you know, every other living being that, that we're aware of. And, and so if we respect that, then we can use stress to our advantage and when we don't respect it, we reach burnout and, and then things start to go wrong. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. 
United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear and t-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombus. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com/acast and use code acast for 20% off your first purchase. I asked my Instagram followers if they had any questions for you. I got quite a lot. So I would love to just throw a couple of them at you while we still have some time, if that's okay. Of course. Here is one that I can certainly relate to myself. I get severe anxiety from my three-year-old boy's mood swings all day. He's up and down and I can't cope. And I certainly feel like when my baby, when he goes into a bit of a meltdown, I go with him and I feel like I've gone through the emotions with him and I come back and I'm needing to calm down myself. How can someone learn to stay balanced and calm through someone else's meltdown and typically a toddler (laughs) I can absolutely relate to this I had this experience this morning actually I took my toddler on the school run before I was going to take him to nursery and he decided as we we did our solar parking stride so we got out the car do you want to go in the buggy do you want to go on the scooter I want to go on the buggy and in in the buggy so get the buggy out we're halfway then to school I want my scooter I want my scooter oh no 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 and the screaming starts and it and he's three so it's all big and it's huge and it's loud and there are parents everywhere and uh you know that there's that feeling of I'm being looked at this is awful I want to cry um you know that it just it's it's hard it's really really tough and there is I I do not suggest for a minute that that anyone should be able to not feel anything in that moment. I think it's normal and it's natural because it's really, really hard. And they're your kids. So of course you feel impacted by their emotions. Absolutely. And you want to do the best thing you can. And But often the advice about what the best thing is to do is all based on this idea that you've got bags of time and no pressures around you. That, you know, that if your child is having a having a meltdown in the street, that that you don't need to be anywhere right now. And you can just take your time to to do it in exactly the best way. And, and often that's not realistic, is it? You know, you've got somewhere to be. You've got to be at work so, so you don't get the sack or you've got, a, yeah. you know, an appointment to get to, whatever it is. You know, I would say cut yourself some slack and it's it, you know we we just have to as long as you're doing your best I mean there are many times that I have I've tried my best fallen short of what I want that best to be and then told myself I'll try again tomorrow mm-hmm. I'll try again tomorrow and and then sometimes when I fall too far away from what I want it to be I'll go back to the drawing board and I'll go back to things like um, books that have helped me that have sort of inspired me or made me feel like I have a sense of direction with my parenting or those sorts of things. But I, I don't anymore expect myself to get it perfectly every day. Yeah. So when toddlers are screaming, it's stressful. Uh, Allow that stress to be in your system and do the best that you can. And if that means, you know, stepping back for a minute, if you're able to do that, then, then go ahead, you know, do what helps at the time. Um, but something that's in line with your values as a parent. So, you know, have some clear sort of non, non-negotiables. These, this is, these are the ways I do not deal with it because I don't believe in that. And these are the ways, these are my options that are left, you know, so what yeah. can I do? And even or not all of those will be ideal, but, but you can do what you need to do to get through. Amazing advice. Here's another really good question. How do you tell the difference between avoidance and sticking to boundaries? Oh, interesting. So I would say it's what motivates the choice. So uh, avoidance is often a decision that's based on fear or anxiety. So um, I'll avoid something because, well, not even necessarily fear and anxiety. It could be any emotion that's aversive and that you don't want to have, right? I'm, I'm going to avoid doing my tax return because it causes me stress, or I'm going to avoid seeing that friend that always makes me feel less than, or I'm going to, you know, whatever it is, it's I'm avoiding a feeling. I'm, I'm, I'm preventing a certain feeling that feels uncomfortable to me. Whereas I guess a boundary is something you can put in place 
that is for your health. So maybe that person in my family that I have a difficult relationship with, I'm going to have a boundary that enables me to step back from that relationship and replenish and rest in between before I go back into that situation, which causes me stress, for example. So a boundary is something that you can kind of hold that enables you to function at your best more of the time. This is a very common anxiety. So anxiety tips regarding being single and how to overcome expectations as a woman who's in her 30s. It's really hard to meet someone, isn't it? In in today's society, but at the same time, the possibilities are always there. And so if we are always focused on you know, becoming the person that we want to be and at the same time being open and curious to learning about other people and and understanding and and knowing other people, meeting other people um, without necessarily having an agenda to that, then that increases the possibilities of that happening. But, you know, when you you sort of look after yourself and you um, you make your life the way you want it to be, and you're open to meeting other people, um, then then I guess it increases the chances. But other than that, you know, when you think about the anxiety around it, I, I would I would be tempted to, if I was in therapy, I'd be tempted to open up the anxiety. You know, what is that anxiety about? What if? What if you don't meet anyone? Because that's a possibility, right? What if that doesn't happen? Well, the answer is generally that you will find a way to deal with it, and you you can. You can then choose, okay, if so if that worst case scenario happens, what kind of response could I have that I'd be really proud of or really happy with? So if that if that scenario happens in my life, you know, when I get to, I don't know, 104 and I'm in an armchair looking back on my life and I didn't meet the person, what would what would my life need to include or how would I need to approach that in order to look back and think, yeah, I'm glad. I'm happy with that. I did all right. Such good advice. Another really good one here, which is something we probably we probably tend to forget to address, is just how to label your anxiety or know you're anxious in the first place. I think there is a lot of fear in itself around what's my label. Yeah, what, what is it I'm feeling? And and uh, when I was researching for the book, actually, I learned a lot about um, you know our sort of how important our vocabulary is for how we feel and this idea that you don't have to have the same labels as everybody else if you feel something um, in a very specific situation you can give it a name and it doesn't have to match what everyone else calls it as long as you are um, using words to express a certain feeling then you're you're creating, what's called a sort of granularity. So you're, you're creating a sense of your brain. It knows, oh, I know this feeling and this is the label I give it. And whether that's, it doesn't even have to be an English word. Lisa Feldman Barrett talks about the idea of, um, she's a brilliant researcher in America and she talks about the idea of, of you can even use um, words from other languages when there doesn't feel that there's a, a decent word in your language to, um, to label a certain feeling. It doesn't matter. You, you can make up words if you want to, but you know, use things like journaling to, to, to talk about, okay, when I'm in this situation and this happens, I feel something that feels a bit like this and you describe it. That in itself is really, really powerful and useful for maintaining good mental health. So I'd worry less about what is exactly, you know, how do I know when exactly it's anxiety and when it's not, it doesn't have to qualify as anything. It's just your experience. I've had a real journey with the the words that I use myself when it comes to anxiety. Like I will never say, oh, my anxiety, like as if it's something I carry around with me, that doesn't work for me. I, For me, I think of anxiety as something that everyone is capable of feeling at different times in their lives. And sometimes I feel it and sometimes I don't. So I've never kind of taken ownership of it in that way that it's this thing I'm dragging around with me because there, there'll be chunks of time in my life where it's not even relevant. It's not something I feel. And also I used to be quite scared of the idea when people say, oh, like it sounds like you have generalized anxiety disorder. And I just that wording did nothing to to help improve things. It made me think of it as something I would never be able to work with or overcome and something I'd be stuck with. And so for me, that's been so powerful. And obviously I know, look, there's clinical diagnoses and there's different terminology for things, but I actually feel like a lot of people are stuck suffering in the label that they've they've been given or that they've assigned themselves. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you. And I think that's such a a great strategy because, you know, even though you've had this chapter in your life where there's been more anxiety than in other chapters, there's still absolutely lots of potential for other chapters to be full of 
different emotions, isn't there? And so, you know, there was, there was, um, I experienced lots of anxiety within this season. Mm-hmm. And, and as I move forward, there's still potential to experience different a range, a different range of emotions. And there might be a flood of something else or something different. And it's acknowledging that all emotional experience is part of being human. And sometimes we'll experience more of some than others. I love the word you use there, season. When I look back at that time in my life, I was in a season of going through a lot of change and it brought a lot of anxiety to the fore and I had to come face to face with it and understand it and move through it. And now I'm in a season where it does not define my life at all. And, you know, I'm in a completely different season and that's the way life goes. It's not something you need to say as set in stone for the rest of your life. And I think it's so liberating when you let go of that for yourself and you just drop the rope on trying to, to live your life according to what someone told you about you once. Yeah, absolutely. Before I let you go, for someone who's really feeling anxious today, maybe they're about to go in and do a presentation at work. Maybe they're going to a social engagement now that things are opening up after COVID and they're feeling anxious about that. What's the one thing that could help them feel a little bit more calm in the moment or move through it and get them through that experience? Sure. So I guess uh, we talked earlier about breathing, didn't we? And, And so I would keep in mind that changing your breathing is is pivotal in terms of uh, changing the physiology of what's happening in your body. But at the same time, let's say there's a certain experience like, you know, doing a presentation. One of the experiences I talk about in the book is at the end of clinical training, you have this exam that's called a viva. So it's like an oral exam. So you go into a room, there's a panel of experts um, in front of you and you've got to answer questions. And it's really scary. And I remember waiting to go into my exam and the girl who came up before me was in floods of tears, clearly kind of traumatized by the whole thing. So I'm thinking, oh God, here we go. And, and at that point, a tutor walked past me and he said, enjoy it enjoy it this is the this is probably the only time in your life when people will have read your thesis cover to cover found it genuinely interesting and will ask you questions about it in in detail so enjoy the chance to share what you've learned and you know uh, sort of expand on all the hard work that you've done over the last three years so that kind of stuck with me and I tried to sort of hold on to that as I went in the room I was still stressed there was still anxiety there there was still the potential to fail but I added some enjoyment to the mix and I and I did I I enjoyed the process even though I was still you know I still had the possibility of getting it really wrong and and a bad outcome happening I I now look back on that experience as as a positive one, because I enjoyed the chance to talk about this thing I'd been working on. And, and what I didn't realize at the time, but do now sort of looking back is all he'd done there was reframe it for me because that feeling of anxiety is very similar to the feeling of uh, what the, the, what's going on in your body is very similar to what happens when you're excited. So you have that same sort of uh, level of arousal and you can get the pounding heart and you can sweat and all those things. The difference is how you conceptualize it in your mind and the language that you use. And so, you know, what if you have this big presentation at work and you feel anxious about it because you're focused on not tripping on the step on the way up or that kind of thing? What if you were to, to reframe your mind and look at what I'm really excited about? What am I going to love about this? What do I need to focus on if I'm going to enjoy myself? And and often it's asking that question, what do I need to be focused on? Recently, when I was sort of promoting the book, I went on the the Lorraine Kelly show and I was petrified. I had to go to a big TV studio and I'd never been to a TV studio before. I'm thinking, oh gosh, right. I need to enjoy this. Probably not going to do this again. Let's, Let's enjoy it. Let's go for it. And so I focused on enjoying the chance to to meet someone that I'd seen on TV previously and asking her questions and finding out about her. And and when I did that, when I shifted my focus and I reframed the whole thing, I was able to enjoy it. I was still stressed. My heart was still pounding and I still had the sort of sweaty palms as I went in, but that was to help me perform. I needed that level of stress to help me stay alert. Um, But I was able to then enjoy the process. 
So allow for the feelings of anxiety. Don't try and get rid of them or not have them. Of course you have them. It's so normal. But if you can create a little bit of space in the middle there to consider the possibility of maybe it working out or you enjoying it, something good coming from it. And that that just sounds like such incredible advice just to balance things away from the negative into something that's very likely to happen and might reframe it and make it a much better experience for you. Yes, it's fine. You know, anxiety is one emotion that can be present, but there are others that can be present too. So, you know, find ways to to create those other emotions as well and invite them to be there. Dr. Julie, thank you so much for joining me on Owning It, the Anxiety Podcast. There is so much in this chat that I know people will be able to pluck out and write down on paper and apply to their lives today, whether it's touching on a little bit of parenting anxiety or preparing to go and do something scary. You've given me so much food for thought. You've helped me reframe a lot of things and I guess contextualize my experience. I wish you the best of luck with the book, not that you need it because it's absolutely flying. And I hope it gets into loads of people's hands because you're you're brilliant and you articulate everything so beautifully. Thank you so much. And it's been absolutely brilliant. I could sit here and chat to you all day. It's great. So thank you so much for having me. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. The easiest way to access Owning It Real Time is to head to the link in the episode description or episode details, whatever you call them, show notes. You will find the link in there at the top. You can sign up right away for Owning It Real Time and access a full library of 10 situation-specific audio guides that will help you own your anxiety even more than you've ever done before.